Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a few colleagues. Uh, Ryan, Ryan Sweet, uh, Head of Real-Time Economics. Ryan, how was your week? Busy, really busy. A lot of important data came out. I know. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, so uh, buckle in. Um, you're a, someone told me, well, you're a Yankees fan? No. Oh, 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 I'm a huge oh, Red Sox fan. I'm sorry. Fan. I'm sorry. Red Sox fan. I, Red Sox. Is that right? Yeah. Right. That is correct. And you take great pleasure when the Phillies aren't doing so well. I do. I do. do. Yeah. I think they had a tough week. Uh, I mean, as a Red Sox fan, I mean, the last, you know, 10, 15 years have been the best years in their franchise history. So it's been and, a good time. And, and I'm sure you have a lot to do with that. Your, no. your, your fandom. No. Okay. I am pretty um, superstitious though. And you're, you're superstitious. You're, you're a very superstitious guy. Yeah. I, pl I played baseball throughout college. So I, you know, it's just in my nature to be superstitious. Oh, so give me this lettuce. Like, like, give me, I, I have a couple superstitions myself, really bizarre ones. I'm not even going to talk about them, but can you give us uh, one of yours? Or when it comes to economic data, like when like retail yeah. sales came out this morning, I have a super, yeah. I can't listen to like the numbers come out on the radio or on the TV. I have uh -huh. to go to the source site and I got to uh -huh. click it right at 830. And I have my, I usually I cross my fingers and you know, it's, it's weird. <laughs> I'm not kidding. My oh, wife God. thinks I'm nuts. You are under such pressure, my friend. Oh my goodness. We're going to have to somehow help you out with that. I don't know. That sounds pretty, pretty difficult. Oh goodness. Uh, hey, Chris, uh, Chris Dorides, uh, deputy chief economist. Hey, Chris, uh, what do you think? Mark? Do you have any, what? Oh, I know you're a, you're a, what's that Italian game? Bocce, Bocce, Bucci. Bocce, you know yeah, about? yeah. I, you play that? I have you, played it. Yeah, you have played Not it early, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's good. Uh, you didn't play that in college, then. I did not. Play, I did <laughs> not. Uh, I did not get a bocce scholarship. No, no, no bocce scholarship. <laughs> right? Are you a baseball fan? Not really. Not really. Not really. Yeah. I grew up near Detroit, so yeah, oh. Tigers, I guess. But yeah, I, I, I couldn't I tell you that. how they're doing. So do you have superstitions too, or like uh, Ryan just described? I think we all have superstitions. I can't think of any right now, but. Uh... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, uh, 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 that, that's good. You're, you don't have the same kind of pressures, uh, demons that Ryan seems to have. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and we have Adam Caymans. Uh, Adam uh, is head of our uh, re regional economics and Adam, welcome. Thanks, Mark. How was your week, Adam? It's pretty good. Uh, Didn't we 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 were on a conversation? Or, oh, we were answering questions we, from a webinar, right? Uh, we started the week together. We're ending the we're week together. Ending, <laughs> we're ending yeah. the week together. Do you want to know my my superstition? It's like weird. It's a little weird, but maybe I shouldn't tell you. I think Is you it walk coffee now. every morning. I have to. All right. <laughs> so every. Uh, when I'm not traveling, uh, I have blueberries every morning, you know, with, you know, oatmeal and the banana, but I have to wash the bananas, I mean, excuse me, not the bananas, the, the blueberries at least 10 times. If I don't wash the blueberries, you know, wash the blueberries 10 times, it's not going to be a good day. That's, that's weird, right? That's a little, that's much weirder than mine. <laughs> that's is, that, uh, is that superstition or OCD? Oh, yeah, what is what that? that like? <laughs> OCD or something. I don't know. It's really, that's weird. Uh, but anyway, I shouldn't have said that, but uh, 
now you know a lot about me. Okay, so uh, three parts to the conversation. Uh, actually, maybe four parts. We just had the first part. part. But the next part is the data, the statistics. And, you know, uh, we're going to talk about inflation because uh, that's top of mind for everybody. We've got consumer price inflation this week. So we'll dig into that in just a minute. And then uh, the uh, big topic uh, this this week, uh, I thought we'd talk about demographic trends. I mean, you know, people might think, oh, that sounds a little boring. But actually, Demography is destiny, uh, and we'll talk about that. And Adam is going to give us um, a sense of what the because we just got the results from the census 2020, and um, we want to get Adam to brief us on that. And then I'll uh, at the end tie it all together uh, and uh, give you a sense of where we landed on things. So the data, let's talk about the data. So I think we should talk about the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, right? I mean, that seems like the natural place to start. Um, it was a surprise, right, Ryan? It was. It's, so the CPI rose uh, 0.8%. The consensus was 4.2%. Yeah. It's one yeah. of the biggest misses that I can remember going back several years with the CPI. Usually the CPI comes in within you know one or one-tenth of the consensus. So this was a big, big miss. Yeah, and what was behind the miss? Two things. Uh, uh, the semiconductor shortage, which drove up uh, prices of new cars, but since we have this shortage of of vehicle production, you know people are getting pushed into the new vehicle market, and used car prices were up ten percent in April. Hold it! I mean, the chips—I know chips are in short supply. They can't produce as many cars. Are actually uh, the automakers are pulling back on their vehicles, so they they actually raised prices on the new vehicles. Uh, they did. They did. Okay. I mean, and I thought used vehicles were up a lot, but that goes to the lack of new vehicle sales. Correct. During the pandemic, which means fewer off-lease uh, vehicles now, and that drives up the price. Yeah, they could be part of it, but then you hear yeah. these anecdotes where they're you know new car inventories lean, so people are going into the used car market, and that's driving up prices there. Oh, so okay. when you look so at it's demand too, it's demand. Demand as well. too. Yeah. yeah. So when you look okay. at new and used cars prices, that added three-tenths of a percentage point to uh, the April CPI. And then you have the reopening effect. So if you look at lodging away from home, which is hotels, motels, uh, you, um, uh, uh, rental cars, you know, those prices spiked. When you add up all the reopening components, that added another two-tenths of a percentage point. So vehicles reopening, roughly 60% uh, of the CPI, accounted for the increase in the CPI in April. So the, again, the, the, I think you were forecasting three tenths and we got eight tenths mm-hmm. and you're saying the miss there really is that the, these uh, kind of one-off feels like kind of one-off effects, uh, which you, I'm sure you anticipated to some degree. They just all came at once. It sounds like. In, yeah. In I, I, I thought vehicle uh, used car prices were a big wild card because, you know, you know, one of the inputs into the CPI for uh, vehicles is the Mannheim index. And that, mm-hmm. you know, just was off the charts, but I didn't anticipate it to like fully catch up and it, it pretty much did. Uh, and then these uh, reopening effects, I mean, we had some in March, like lodging away from home, uh, rental car prices. And I didn't think that it was going to be persistent for another month. I thought we'd get a little bit of payback, uh, but that didn't come to fruition. So do you think we're, we're done? Do you think the uh, that the uh, that the, the rental car companies, the 
uh, hotels, the airlines have, have normalized prices and we've pretty much passed or passed all this. No, I think we have, more, we have several more months of this. Several more months of this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you view this as, as, tra- as, a, as a Fed official would say, this is transitory. It's temporary. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, you only reopen the economy once. So, you know, after we get through this, you know, probably by the next school year, you're going to start to see, you know, things, be, uh, inflationary pressures begin to moderate. Right. Hopefully. Hey, Chris, are you yeah. as sanguine as he is on, on these inflation numbers? That this is temporary and, and yeah. you know, once we're on the other side, the next few months, the inflation will, will uh, abate. Yeah, I'd agree. I think we're going to have the summer of spending here. Everyone's out there once uh, demand's going to come roaring back here or is already roaring back and we have these supply chain issues but once we work through these we get on the other side of summer labor market's going to be more normalized by then schools opening up or more labor supply coming into the market i think things uh, work themselves out but that's not to say i don't it's still my number two risk right 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 after covid um yeah risk meaning that inflation might end up being more higher, more persistent than anticipated. Yeah, there's the psychological component, right? The expectations get embedded, and then you're that's hard to fight, right? Uh, you're off exactly. Run. So we actually got a, a read on that, didn't we? With the University of Michigan survey, consumer sentiment index, they ask uh, respondents about their one year ahead inflation expectations, and I think it's the three year ahead, isn't it? Three year or five year ahead? Uh, five to ten. Oh, is it five to ten? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they were they were both up a lot, right? Gas uh, prices. The month. You think it's simply just uh, con- consumers are focused on the fact that the gallon of ga- regular unlit is over three bucks. A, uh, of course, the Colonial Pipeline exactly uh, act didn't help. help. All right, yeah, didn't help. I mean that the survey overlapped that almost perfectly. So you know uh, you, you hear all the anecdotes of supply shortages for gasoline uh, and prices jumped in you know I think in the south and parts of the northeast. So Really, people's short-term inflation expectations are based on gasoline. And then if you look at the uh, relationship or the correlation between long-term and short-term inflation expectations, what people think inflation today gets embedded in what they think it's going to be five, 10 years from now. So I don't think this is going to be very sticky. I think it's going to come back down you know, once we get you know, gasoline prices to, to normalize a little bit. Okay. So you had to jump in uh, food prices too, right? So, Correct. That's certainly something consumers are tuned into. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did notice though. Did you see the uh, Philadelphia uh, Fed survey, senior uh, uh, of professional economists? By the way, we participate in that survey. Do you, do you watch that? In, do you watch that survey at all? You guys look at that I survey do. at all. You do. Did you notice that um, because there's uh, long run inflation expectations? Uh, they asked the professional economists, "What is your expectation for uh, both?" Uh, CPI inflation and core consumer expenditure deflator inflation, which is PC, that PCE is what the Federal Reserve uses for uh, benchmarking uh, monetary policy of a two percent target through the business cycle, and uh, they they have norm- they've they've risen quite a bit. Uh, uh, that on CPI, I think ten year inf- expectations are now two point four two point five percent, something like that. And core PCE is kind of 2.2, something like that over the next uh, 10 years. So I, 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 for me, of all the measures of inflation expectations, that's the one I put the most weight on. Uh, maybe, maybe because 
that's my expectations. <laughs> they use my, I'm one of the contributors. We're one of the contributors, but I, I find that to be the most stable in a uh, measure of inflation expectations. You know, it doesn't move around a lot like the University of Michigan based on current data. And so if it moves, uh, that's, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, and, it, and it has moved to a significant degree. Do you, do you think do it's you just worried about that at all? Do you think it's some economist just taking the Fed at its word and that they're going to aim for slightly above 2% inflation? So that's what they're going to pencil into their, their long-term forecast. So they find the Fed credible. They're saying the Fed, Correct. Fed wants yeah. it, the Fed's going to get it. One yeah. way or the other, they're going to get it. Yeah. Right. I, I'm sure there's some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you're, you're not... Now, if that started to tick up from 2.2 two to 2.3, two 2.4 two on core PCE, then you would get a little nervous about this, but... Yeah, I would. You would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You too, Chris? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to watch that. that. That's a very good indicator. Any other measures of inflation expectations we should be watching? I know you, Ryan, put together a, uh, uh, a, a inflation expectations. What do you call it? A tracker, I think, don't you? Uh, which is a compilation. Well, Evan Carson, one of our colleagues, uh, helped create this uh, inflation pulse index. So it takes uh, a lot of the market-based and survey-based measures of inflation expectations. It includes the Philly Fed survey uh, and basically combines them into one metric. And we you know, adjust it to be on a CPI basis because you know, market-based measures are uh, you know, five-year, five-year fours are based on the CPI. Uh, so we keep it that way. And then we adjust it to put it uh, on a PCE basis because you know, that's what the Fed you know, pays close attention to. So uh, that's weekly, and we updated on our on our website, Economic View. And in the latest week, it was one point nine eight percent, the long term PCE adjusted inflation expectation. No so kidding. So right seems like the, they're they're anchored. Oh, that is fascinating. Uh, and and what was the low? Do you do you recall? I don't I'll off the top of my head. Mm-mm. Yeah, I'll let you get it. Okay. Um. So okay. So the CPI jump was transitory, as the Fed would say. Later this fall, end of the year, that'll start to come out of the inflation statistics. Uh, you would worry if inflation expectations started to pick up, but that hasn't happened yet to any meaningful degree, although it, it has risen, uh, but that's to script so far, more a feature than a bug, I, I, I guess. Um, what about... Uh, Wages. Uh, so it feels like wage that could be the other way that uh, this turns out to be more than just transitory. That this becomes a more fundamental upward shift in inflation. Because if wage growth is, has accelerated, that's such a labor is such a key input into so many business activities that businesses will be under pressure to raise prices in a more consistent way, and that that would be uh, an issue for longer term inflation. Any concern there on the wage side? Uh, I, uh, I, you know, if you look at the average hourly earnings that came out last week, or the employment cost index, I think that also came out last week. Any, any sense there? I mean, you're hearing stories of signing bonuses and other wage pressures related to, um, you know, the reopenings um, in the different industries. Any, any concern about that, Chris or Ryan? Again, I view those as largely temporary. The Labor supply is an issue, right? UI benefits may be part of the, the story, but childcare and pandemic are also having a, an impact here. So until we work those things out, there is there is going to be more limited supply of labor, but I'm expecting that to, to fade throughout the summer 
and therefore those pressures fade as well. Yeah. Okay. Actually, there's two other data points that I think kind of give me some solace around inflation longer run that that the acceleration that we're experiencing is to, to script, it's, it's a feature, not a bug. One is uh, productivity growth. Uh, that remains strong. Uh, I don't know if you caught the Q1 data, but that was uh, uh, quite robust. And it, it, I, I, I don't know if people have been keeping track, but productivity growth in, in recent years, really over almost the past five years has accelerated and it's very close to its long run trend. So non-farm business productivity for much of the post-World War II period has been about 2%, give or take. It was very low in the years following the financial crisis. But in the last five years, it's almost back to that long-term trend, 2%, which is encouraging. Uh, and even more recently, stronger. And of course, productivity growth um, uh, will tick up coming out of recessions. Output coming out of recessions picks up faster than than employment. So you get this pop to productivity that turns out to be generally temporary, but feels like it's lasting longer than that. Uh, do you, you guys concur with that sentiment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think uh, if you look at business investment in intellectual property, uh, particularly R&D, that leads productivity. And that's been really strong over the last you know uh, year or so. So I think you know productivity growth could you know uh, continue to come in better than what people are uh, anticipating post-pandemic. No, is that right? I didn't, I had not noticed that. So if I look, if you look at the growth in investment and in intellectual property, that tends to lead a uh, measure productivity growth. The, the lags are long. It's I think yeah. 13 or 14 quarters. So, but uh, this uh -huh. suggests that, you know, maybe this uh, expansion will see stronger productivity growth than we saw, you know, after the great recession. Right. I got a quick chart. It, it's a cool, yeah, I'd like to see that. Um, and that, the other uh, data point that gives me some solace here is um, uh, is the uh, uh, or it's not a data point, but just a, a trend is the work from anywhere dynamic that we talked about last week. That uh, that may be you, you're seeing people move from higher cost areas uh, and moving to lower cost areas, and that may also dampen. In wage pressures and inflationary pressures, if that that dynamic continues, I know I know Adam, you've been looking at that trend, right? Um, the work from anywhere dynamic. Yeah, that, that's right. And interesting, actually, if you look at the employment cost index regionally, uh, you can see that the southeast is way ahead uh, of the rest of the U.S. The Mountain West is pretty high too, and so these are the those are the types of places people are going to as part of this work from anywhere trend. So you are starting to see wage pressures pick up more significantly in some of those regions that people have been migrating to when they have this increased flexibility built in. Oh, interesting. Uh, interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, anything else on the day? Oh, I, uh, Adam was telling me you have uh, a data quiz for the group uh, around, I think you said it's around census 2020. So that might be oh, a good, no. good segue into the next part of this conversation. So what do you, you think of retail sales? Oh, um, you yeah, tell me, I think about it, uh, Ryan, before we go to Adam's, the, the quiz that Adam's going to give us. But uh, yeah, what do you think? What did you they're, think about They're flat. That's uh, yeah. not a huge surprise. I mean, you got weather payback. You got uh, you know, some fading uh, support from the fiscal stimulus. We weren't going to be able to grow 10% plus in retail sales month in, month out. But I do think 
a word of caution for the uh, for the next several months, maybe through the rest of the year, retail sales are going to be weak, most likely, because uh, if you look at the level of retail sales, it's roughly 620 billion. If that pre-pandemic trend remained, it should be closer to 550 billion. Oh. So we basically brought forward three, four years of retail spending. And now with the economy, the economy reopening, people are going to shift back towards consumer services, all that pent-up demand at the expense of retail sales. Yeah, but what about the 2.3 trillion in excess saving that's out there? Uh, that's the saving above which would have occurred without the pandemic. That's that's 10% of GDP. That's sitting a lot of that sitting in people's bank accounts. They're going to be spending that sure on restaurants and travel and haircuts, but you don't think they're going to continue to buy cars and stuff? No, I no, I think they will. I don't. I just don't think retail sales are going to be growing as quickly as they have recently. Right. You're not going to buy more exercise equipment. Yeah, exactly. Right, there's only so many Peloton bikes you can fit in a in a house. Yeah. Well, how many Peloton bikes do you have? We only have, you have one. A Peloton bike? You got a one? Oh, you got one. You got a Peloton. You have one. Bike. Oh, that's yeah. Um, Adam, do you have a Peloton? You... No, but we had two spin bikes in my house for most of the past year. My wife is a spin instructor. Oh, she is. So, oh, nice. oh, I didn't interesting. Know that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so. do you have a Peloton, Chris? I do not. Yeah, I highly no. recommend it. I do. I, I have one. I got one early on in the pandemic, and it, it really has been uh, kind of a lifesaver during the pandemic, you know, very, particularly in the wintertime. Yeah. Uh, now I can, I'm going back to the Y, right? So, you know. Have you gone back yet? I have. I have. I went, oh, okay. I, yeah. It's I'm, nice. I'm, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to the gym soon, too, as well. So, retail sales, it was flat. You think that presages. Um, relatively soft retailing numbers going forward uh, yeah, as people I don't, shift their spending back to services. Yeah, because yeah. markets pay a lot of cl very close attention to retail sales. First kind of solid barometer of spending every month. Yeah. Uh, but I think the service numbers that come out you know, towards the end of the month are going to be much more important going forward. The only, the only thing I'd say is would be uh, an exception to that is cars, vehicles, right? Because vehicle there are a lot of pent-up demand for new vehicles. And that may be, we got a big number, I think it was in April, 18.5 million. Yeah, that was the biggest April sales month in, in history. And we may, it might be a little depressed going back to your point about chips and the inability of the automakers to produce enough cars. So that might push this pen, uh, satisfaction of this pent-up demand later in the year into next. So that might be one exception with regard to retail sales. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Adam, uh, fire away. What's your quiz? Uh, right. Yeah. Well, I know you guys have these numbers you throw at each other. So this I has figured... got to be reasonably doable. You know, you just can't okay. So if I just gave this number out of the blue, this would not be doable. But you know what okay. I'm here to talk about. All right. Yeah. So okay. it's the number is 18.4 percent or 1.7 percent annualized. And it has to do with with the data I'm here to talk about. The census 2020. Yes. And it's, you said 18.7%. Oh, I think I, I, I can take a guess. I, or unless someone else wants to go first. Do you want me to go? All right, I'll go first. Uh, that's the percent of the population that moved in 2020. That's a good guess, but no. Oh, <laughs> Is it a state's right. population growth? There you go. What? Utah. No way. Wow. Yes. 
I just was going for the fastest growing states population growth. I was really wow, curious. Ryan, you nailed it. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wait. That's, oh, he's that's a champ. You're, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. How did you do that? You're telling me Utah's population grew grew 18.4% last year? No, over the past 10 years. Oh, okay. Hmm. All right. 1.7. I would have gotten that too if I knew it was over the last 10 years. I said 1.7. I was going to say the census was was wrong. No way that uh, I know Utah's growing fast, but not not 18.4% fast. Well, okay. Well, how many? What's the percent of the population that moved last year, Adam? You don't know. I, I don't know that. 1.4%. It, it might be. Saying. We'll we'll just say it is. I will just say. It is. <laughs> uh, all right. Is it? Uh, I always love so, these quizzes. Does anyone else have a quiz? One more quiz before we move on to the census 2020. You got any number, any quizzes, Ryan? Or I, I was going to use a uh, used vehicle CPI, but we, we already took that one. Chris, uh, do you have one? Uh, 473. Thousand? 400. Uh, 473,000. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Oh. And Ryan, I think you know this one. So. 473,000. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually, oh, is that? I, I don't know. So, yeah. Is that initial claims? Yes. Oh, that was there you go. That. Yeah. Weekly initial claims. Yeah. First time oh. below 500,000 since the pandemic began. Yeah. Because Still of the revision. Though. Right. Because of the revision. Still very high. Hey, let me ask you one more question before we move on to census. And we may never get to the census because there's just too much to talk about. But uh, the one thing that I've heard over and over again in the media and actually from um, clients and other folks that I talked to is that the supplemental unemployment insurance, the $300 a week supplemental UI that was included as part of the American Rescue Plan and under current law will be provided by the federal government through September is, is having a, a very significant impact on the willingness of unemployed workers to go to work. This is one of the major impediments to labor supply that we're observing. And, and one reason why the UI, the um, uh, employment numbers last week were on the soft side. What do you think of that? What do you guys think of that argument? Or, or do you have a view on that? Any perspective on that? I think there's some credence to that. Certainly, it's providing some disincentive to search for work uh, as aggressive or take the first job opportunity that you find. So, you know, depending on your, your read of that, that's either a positive or a negative, right? That could be a positive if it means we're getting better quality matches. People don't have to take the first job uh, that's offered. Uh, but in the short term, it could be limiting supply. But I don't think that that's the major effect. I think it's still the pandemic, the risks uh, of contracting COVID to yourself or to your family and childcare, I think is, the, is really a, a significant factor in terms of folks not offering as much labor as we might expect. Yeah, right. Something that, uh, this would be right up Adam's uh, alley is, I think it's 13 states, I might be off on the number of states, are ending the expanded UI mm -hmm. benefits next month. 19. So it would be good to like, track how labor force participation performs there versus the states that maintained it. Not to give you more yeah. work, Adam, but... No, but we have a natural experiment now. Yeah. Basically. yeah. yeah. I think it's 19 states now. That okay. Are doing it. Yeah. And I Did think you see... I, I think you wrote that. That's the only reason I know it. Is you, you wrote it, Ryan. <laughs> I, for some reason, I have 13 stuck in my head. Did okay. you see what Arizona's doing? Yeah, pretty smart. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Yeah, tell everyone. So what Arizona's doing is uh, they're going to end the expanded UI benefits, but they're going to turn that into a rehiring bonus, meaning that if you go out and get a job, you get the benefits that you would have already received, which I think is a very creative way to address this. And hopefully more states adopt this because the federal government was going to pay these UI benefits for, you know, for the most part. So why not just turn it into a rehiring bonus? Right. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's turn to demographics, uh, which uh, is underappreciated, I think, by people. It, it, you know, demographic trends, uh, population growth, household growth, aging of the population, uh, the race, ethnicity of the population, all these things may not matter a whole lot. Immigration policy may not matter a whole lot in a given month, given quarter, but uh, over uh, several years and certainly over several decades, it's a big deal. It drives a lot of what's going on economically and the, and, and the outlook, the economic outlook. Um, so what I thought we'd do, uh, and thus we, I, th I thought it would be important, it's important to talk about. What I thought we'd do though, is that each of us would identify, because there's so many things to talk about when it comes to demographics, one demo key demographic trend that they think is important for us to focus on, and particularly in the context of what it means for the economy and the economic outlook. Uh, and I, and I've, you know, Adam, I, we asked you on uh, because uh, we already picked it for you. Census 2020. That seems like a pretty big deal. So, uh, but uh, we'll we'll go around after we talk about Census 2020. Talk about uh, uh, some of these other trends that we each think are important. So, so Adam, um, yeah, fill us in. What did what did you learn from Census 2020? Sure. And just to maybe give a little bit of background on Census 2020 as well. So, right, so if people don't know that the, the state numbers were released in late April, which is actually behind schedule, it's typically released in December. We won't get more detail in terms of ethnic, racial breakdowns, county level data until the fall, I believe. So um, there's a lot more to be learned. But a couple of things that really stood out, I think kind of from a macro perspective, we had the second lowest population growth ever, right? Kind of continuing a downward trend there, but came very close to the lowest of all time, but we were just slightly ahead of the 1930s. So a little better than the Great Depression, not, not mm. really where you want to be, but a um, few reasons for that. I think one is just international migration came down pretty sharply in the second half of the decade in particular, um, a lot to do with some of the policies from the Trump administration. Um, and birth rates are consistently moving lower as people have children later in life. And uh, that's a, a long-term secular trend that we're seeing in the, in the demographic data as well. Um, of course, as a regional economist, right, I'm, I'm most focused on, the, on some of the hey, regional Hey, can I ask you on that? You didn't, yeah. mention, you didn't mention uh, the obvious, uh, there was a lot of COVID deaths. Uh, did that contribute or was that small in the grand scheme of things it was pretty small in the grand scheme of things in the okay. one year estimates 2019 to 2020 there's some evidence you know that, that shows up a little bit but even then it, it it doesn't really move the needle it did okay all right and what what about if you expanded out not just direct covid deaths but you know increased deaths because of uh, suicide or drug overdose and that kind of thing uh, that might partially related to COVID. It, it might a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, that, that number is so hard to quantify that it's, it's hard mm -hmm. to say what that would do. But if you ultimately, and there might be a number of COVID deaths, right? There's been a lot of talk that maybe the number of COVID deaths actually undercounted in, in many ways. So all told, you're right. If you kind of put all that together, I think the one year rate, uh, 
mm-hmm. you, you see some evidence of that. I still think at a 10 year rate, it's, it's, it's hard to see much evidence mm-hmm. of a COVID effect. Okay. Sorry to stop you. Go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, so, so regionally, the reason I, I mentioned that Utah growth rate at, at the top there is that so 18.4% was the highest growth rate of any state. It was Utah this past year. The previous census, uh, 2010, Nevada was the highest growing, fastest growing state, and it had almost twice the growth rate. It was about 35%. 10 years before that, it was Nevada again. It was almost 70%. So mm-hmm. the top performing states are much less impressive as a group uh, in terms of their population growth rate than they were uh, decades ago. And I think that's actually part of this of a broader trend that we saw when we looked at the data of much more convergence across states. So uh, the, the slowest growing states are, you know, there's a couple that declined, um, West Virginia, Illinois, I think Mississippi. Uh, but you know, the bottom of the range is pretty similar, but the, the top of the range is just much lower than it was. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that just people aren't moving as much, right? So if you look at the, the mover rate over time, which I guess gets to the question you asked me about before, which I think is mm-hmm. something actually like seven, eight percent or something of the population, um, but it's been consistently declining over time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're really starting to see that show up in some of the interstate move data now as well. And so a lot of states in the Northeast, uh, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts actually did better in 2020 in terms of their growth rate than they did in 2010. Uh, and some of that might just be there's less migration overall, which means less out migration. Some of it, though, is well, just kind of weirdness in the data, too. Yeah. The, well, the, I mean, that sounds all pretty standard fare. If you ask me what would the census 2020 show, that I would say that sounds pretty consistent with it. Is there anything in the data that they go, oh, that's that's odd. I didn't expect that. Was there anything that stood yeah, out? Yeah. So the, 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 the last thing that, about the Northeast jumped mm. out. So if you actually look to so the census, they produce annual estimates, mid-year estimates each year of population. And so one state, for example, that, that stands out in the decennial census was New Jersey. So if you follow those, those yearly estimates, New Jersey was kind of growing modestly and really kind of leveled off over the last five years. And to me, that's pretty consistent with the New Jersey narrative, right? It's doing fine. It's not losing residents, but it's not really growing at a significant clip. Uh, the decennial census actually showed New Jersey growing pretty significantly, um, which hmm. which was really surprising. I think, and maybe part of it is that the, is that their mid year estimates are missing. The Couldn't that be New York residents from Manhattan moving over into New Jersey? Couldn't that maybe? Be but New York was also really strong. Really? So yeah, New York was surprisingly strong. Massachusetts was surprisingly strong. So we've actually started. Uh, bugging some people over at the Census Bureau to see if we can get a better idea for why this mismatch uh-huh. I thought I thought New York was strong just because there had been an effort there uh, to count more uh, vigorously. Well, that uh, is one of the theories yeah. for what happened. And actually, we've seen, we saw right to the flip side of that is the Sun Belt looked very weak. So Arizona, right, the, the main reason kind of for this initial statewide uh, release of the numbers is to uh, delegate House seats. Right. And so people who were kind of following this and predicting it expected that Arizona was going to gain a seat uh, and that New York might lose two seats. And ultimately, Arizona did not gain a seat. New York lost one and barely lost one. Um, and mm-hmm. I think to your point, I think part of that may be that there were significant efforts in 
the Northeast. Minnesota is another one that invested really heavily in getting word out about the census. They ended up not losing a seat uh, when there was a lot of thought that they would lose one. So I think you're right. I think the other question mm-hmm. that's sort of out there is, was there an undercount of Latinos? Uh, and that is not entirely clear yet. We've started to dig into the data. We're going to really need to see more detailed demographic, uh, you know, ethnic data, and county data to get a better sense of that. But that is another kind of theory that's out there. Yeah, got it. Hey, uh, also, as you point, as you said, the census is key to repre- representation. Were there, uh, when you look at it, R versus D, were there any significant changes here? Uh, generally, it is more favorable to red states, right? The, the, the Sun Belt, right? Texas, Florida, adding seats, uh, losing uh, a seat in New York, losing a seat in California for the first time ever. Uh, generally, that that is a more favorable story for, for the Republicans. Now, the, the kind of the longer term picture, that's a little bit more complicated because a lot of these states that are uh, that are adding seats are states that are trending more democratic, right? So Texas, mm-hmm. who knows if or when that will ever happen, but it has been trending a little bit bluer each cycle. And so eventually that, that could even out, but uh, short term, it's more favorable uh, for the Republicans. And could it be like in the case of Texas uh, that uh, the population growth is the Hispanic po- population that would be more D than R or is that, Am I stretching it too far? Well, I think it is more D than R. And I think part of it is Hispanic population growth. But I think another big part of it is young tech workers coming to cities like Austin or Dallas. Uh, they yeah. also are more more D than R. So yeah. eventually those people that are coming in are, are tilting the balance. They're just not tilting it as rapidly as a lot of the Democrats would like. Right. Got it. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Uh, that was a good good summary. Uh, Ryan, uh, Chris, any, any other questions for... Adam, regarding the census 2020, before we move on, don't need any, just curious. Okay. All right. So, uh, Chris, uh, what's your demographic trend? Uh, what, what are you focused on? You want to guess? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I don't. Okay. Uh, no way I'd get it. Ryan but, might, because he gets everything. But, you know, that's, uh, it's got to be tied to the housing market. Uh, of course he's so good he's so oh i know what it is i know what it is i know what it is thank you ryan household formation no Uh, not not exactly oh related related Uh, okay far away i think a key demographic uh that uh we should keep an eye on that kind of flies under the radar is uh multi-generational housing or multi-generational households uh specific Mm. um that's a rising trend that i think few people are keyed into, and it has real implications in terms of household formations and housing demand going forward. And from my perspective, it's the the increase in how in multiple generational housing is going to limit the amount of new housing we may ultimately need. Not that we don't have a shortage today, but we might not need as much in the future. Well, how, how big a deal is it? I mean, can, do you have any numbers that give it context? A, yeah, according to Pew, there are sixty four million. People living in multi-generational households, about 20% of the population, and it's been growing, uh, kind of bottom out in the 60s, and then it's been steadily growing since then. And what's driving that dynamic? What's going on? Uh, so part of it is just the composition of immigrants, right? So uh, if you look at this by race or ethnicity, uh, Asian and Hispanic-headed households tend to be more multi-generational, and we do have 
those trends uh, increasing. So that might be part of it. Then I think just the economic circumstances, certainly if you think about COVID, right, people, younger generation not able to to go out, buy a home, start their, their own household, right? Uh, either they're constrained or in some cases, certainly by choice now, people prefer if they're able to work remotely, right? Maybe I don't want to take on that, that big expense. And I think what happens is in some cases, certainly um, that younger generation doesn't break out. They're at home. Uh, maybe the parents are providing, their parents are providing a childcare uh, as well. And I think these, uh, these social relationships get cemented and therefore you, you don't feel the need to, to form your own household in the future. And I think that's a, a trend we'll see continue. So uh, I can't quite remember, but there's, um, I want to say six, seven million uh, uh, people, young people that are, uh, that are uh, still living with their parents um, that typically would have struck out on their own uh, at this point in their life cycle. So this is a lot of boomers and the, the median age of a boomer is uh, in the low 30s now, I think, 30. Millennial. millennial. Oh, excuse me, the millennial. I wish it were the boomers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the boomer. I'm the boomer. Uh, I don't think any of you guys are millennials though. Are you? Are you? You're none of you are millennials, right? You're, you're Xers, I think, aren't you? When's the first, when's the first millennial? Uh, It's 1981. Yeah. I think Ryan is, right? Or no, Mm -hmm. you just missed it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would have been the Papa Smurf. Yeah. <laughs> of the millennial generation. Yeah. So, but there's um, six, seven, eight million of these folks that typically would have struck out on their own that are still living with parents. That's you're saying that many of those uh, folks won't, uh, won't strike out. They'll stay with their, their, the rest of their family uh, in, in these multi-generational households. So we're not going to yeah. see, Everyone like me who expected those households to form and they haven't, and you're saying they probably won't, or many, in many cases, some, they some portion, right? Obviously, some portion not, of it. Yeah. Say yeah. half, right? That'd yeah. be significant already in terms of our, yeah, of our six, look. seven million. That's a lot of households that aren't going to yeah. form. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I think our household formation, we're expecting something like what, 1.25, 1.3 million per annum over the next decade. You, are you saying that, does that feel right to you or do you think we might be, be on the high side because of the multi-generational effects? I think it might be a bit high. A bit high. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And of course, one interesting factoid, uh, <laughs> this is based on uh, CPS data, con, uh, current population survey data. Uh, the number of households actually we're down on a year-over-year basis in the second quarter, third quarter of last year. On a year-over-year basis, they actually declined, and that goes back to the pandemic. That was the first decline in the in the households over a period of, over a year, uh, I think since I don't know ever, uh, or maybe you have to go back to the depression, you know, to find oh, something yeah. like that. Yeah, you know, that kind of a decline. So it it has bounced right back up. So you we saw when the pandemic hit is a lot of young people went back to live with, to live with their parents or doubled up with, you know, friends. And so the number of households declined, but it's now kind of come right back to life again as the 
pandemic is starting to fade. So interesting factoid. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good one, Chris. Um, Ryan, what's your uh, your demographic trend? I don't know if you're you're not going to like it as much as Chris's, but I'm watching the uh, birth rate or the number of births. It's fallen for six consecutive years, and we are now below like like the replacement rate. So more people are dying every day than are being born. And this is all data from the CDC, so the Center of Disease Control. Uh, so I think that that's going to have not mm. economic implications next year, year after, but longer term. You know, as the millennial generation moves on, and then the back generations, it doesn't seem like population growth is going to be as strong uh, as I would have thought a few years ago. Yeah, the pandemic really did a number on on births, didn't it? Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, because I, I remember, had, go ahead. I, was, I remember when the pandemic started, we were just debating, you know, is it going to be right. a baby boom, a divorce boom? And it, I don't think we have, I think it turns out it was a baby bust. Yeah. I mean, because in other kind of quasi disasters, uh, you saw a baby boom, right? Because people were mm-hmm. stuck in home. And I mean, I think there was this one famous event where I guess power went out in New York or something, you know, uh, for a while. And there was a uh, actually a a baby boom nine months later. I mean, exactly nine months later. Uh, but that did not happen. Just the opposite. This this spooked people, you know, to a significant degree. Uh, um, Do we have any data on divorces yet? I haven't seen any. I haven't seen you, anything. Adam, yet. seen any divorces? No, I, I, I've been looking also. I don't think we have anything yet. We, we don't have anything yet. Yeah. So do you think births will pick back right up again as the pandemic fades away, people will get right back to, or do you think this is going to have longer, the pandemic is going to have longer lasting effects on the birth rate? It might have longer lasting effects. I mean, yeah. the number of births have fallen for six consecutive years. So, I mean, the pandemic is only one of those years. It seems like there's like a structural change going on. Yeah. Yeah. That would I don't be have any problem. good theories behind it. I mean, uh, and my wife threw out one the other day that she's like, I think younger people are worried about climate change and they're like, you know, should we have children when, you know, it seems like the end of the world is coming? Whoa, honestly, is that right? That's, That's our theory. Contributes negatively to Yeah, Shadow. contributes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. wow. Boy, that would be something. Uh, yeah. It's also like a terrible though. movie. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, okay. Do uh, you want to hear mine? Yeah. Anyone interested? For sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah, of course. I, we, I actually, there's there's two key trends. I'm not sure which one I should talk about. One is around immigra- uh, immigration. I, I think we might have mentioned that. Obviously, immigration is way down, and that that's a big deal if that doesn't normalize. Uh, you know, it, uh, before President Trump, immigration, you know, bounces around a lot in any given year. But it was tr- it was about one million per annum. That's both legal and undocumented. And uh, that fell sharply during the Trump administration. And uh, Adam mentioned the policy that clearly played a role. And then the pandemic, you know, obviously played a role. And I think we're estimating immigration last year at about 250K. So that's a big come down. Uh, and that's a big deal in terms of everything, you know, labor force growth, uh, long-term labor force growth, econo- thus economic growth, household formation and housing activity, just general uh, demand. We, we are, I do expect it to rebound with the pandemic winding down and, um, you know, with the Biden administration, I, I suspect they'll uh, reverse uh, Trump's 
uh, anti-immigration policies, and we'll start getting that back up. But that's that's something to watch. That's a that's a, that's a game changer if that doesn't pick up in a big uh, in a significant way. Not only in terms of people, but there's a strong evidence that immigrate immigrants are key to productivity growth as well. Uh, they're you know generally by definition risk takers, and they start companies at a, a more prodigious rate than uh, domestic residents. And that's key to obviously uh, innovation and change in, in productivity gains. But that's not the one I want to talk about. Uh, I, I do want to talk about something that came up in our conversation, our podcast last week with Adam Ozemek around aging and productivity growth. And uh, we alluded to it. I'll mention it. And uh, you know, I think it's very important uh, to the outlook. And that is um, that uh, there is a very strong uh uh, relationship between the aging of the population and the slowing in productivity growth. In fact, we, in the work that we did, uh, Adam, um, Dante, I, there was someone else uh, that contributed to that study. I can't quite remember who that was. We found that uh, uh, one of the most significant reasons for the slowdown in productivity growth uh, in the post-financial crisis period, the last decade compared to previous decades was uh, the aging of the boomers into their 50s and 60s. Uh, and, um, you know, we demonstrated this by looking at, uh, Adam, you appreciate this, looking at state level data uh, and uh, cross uh, country data. And, you know, it's a pretty definitive uh, kind of relationship. Uh, and the key statistic is the, uh, you know, share of the workforce that's over the age of 65. So, you know, if that rises, then that puts downward pressure on uh, on productivity. Uh, a, a couple things about that. Uh, we did uh, investigate or uh, why. So, what's the intuition behind that result? Why would aging um, slow down uh, productivity gains? And we uh, had two key theories. One theory, which I was hoping for, we called the wise man theory. Uh, the wise man theory is that uh, what happens is when when uh, older workers leave the workforce, they take a lot of institutional knowledge with them. So when I leave Moody's, you guys are doomed because, yep, there you go. Because uh, you know I, I'm the glue that keeps it all together for you guys. You guys, it's just going to be. You know, uh, Lord of the Rings when I'm, or not Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Flies when I'm gone, you guys. Uh, so, uh, but I take a lot of institutional knowledge with me. And the competing theory, just the opposite, uh, the albatross theory, uh, that is, I'm keeping you guys down, right? Uh, because you guys uh, uh, have invested in new technologies, you've got other ideas, you have more energy. But, you know, because I'm not leaving and, and, and Chris can't become chief economist until I leave, I'm, I'm holding you guys down. So I, I'm going to ask you guys, which of those two theories do you think it is that we found? You better go ahead. You when are the performance it. reviews? <laughs> <laughs> I think we did them. I think they're done. We're, we're close. Yeah, feel free. Go ahead. Fire away. Yeah, well... Yeah, you, as you, listeners probably figured out, it's the albatross theory uh, that is uh, quite definitive. It's not the wise man theory. So uh, guys like me, you know, are keeping the younger guys from uh, realizing their potential and and uh, and taking advantage of all the new technologies that have been put in place. One other final point: uh, the drag on productivity growth from the aging of the population 
has peaked. Uh, that is that peaked about a year or two ago. It's still a bit of a drag, uh, but the drag is diminishing now because you know boomers are now aging well into their 60s and are leaving the workforce and it's becoming less of a deal. And if you look out towards the end of this decade, it will no longer be a drag. So this this uh, aging uh, headwind to productivity growth should uh, start to wind down as we make our way through. Another reason to be a bit optimistic about you know productivity gains going forward. So I thought you'd find that interesting. Um, so, uh, so you you uh, you knew it was the albatross, not the uh, not the wise man. Yeah, I figured you did. No, I think it's the wise man. You think it's the wise man? You got okay. them. props right. in the data. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, any other uh, uh, last minute demographic trends you want to point out, or we kind of exhausted? I mean, there's many, uh, uh, but any others you want to point out quickly? No. Adam, any other good ones? Okay. Already, okay. Well, we're gonna uh, call it quits. I do want to bring it all together there for you. I, you know, I, I often joke that uh, that uh, I should be uh, the subject of a reality TV show because uh, I am soon to be sixty-two years old. Uh, sixty-two is the I think it's the peak year of the baby boom generation. So if you you know, if I'm, if it's not 62, it's like 61 or 60, 62. Does anyone want to guess? And, and that used to be the largest single year age group in the country. But apparently, you know, when you get into your 60s, you know, people start to, you know, leave us. So that's starting to get, uh, be, be a bit smaller, but it's still a very large single year age cohort. Uh, and then you know, anyone want to guess what the second largest kind of single year age cohort is, you know, what that is, what year that is. This, this, this you, you should figure out. So if I'm 62 and I'm the largest single year age group and abstracting from the 61 and 60 year old, 60 year olds, what's the second largest single year age group? You want to guess? This is, this should, this, this is, you should deduce this. See, this is why it's the 32. wise man theory. <laughs> yes. It's not the albatross theory. What do you think? Thirty-two, exactly. You've heard me say this before, right? No, you, you no, very good. No, you didn't. <laughs> Excellent, exactly. Thirty-two, the first, uh, my firstborn, the firstborn of the, of the boomer, uh, is uh, thirty-two years old, and that's the teeth of the uh, millennial generation. So my, I'm sixty-two. My son isn't quite thirty-two. He's he'll get a little annoyed at this. He's he's a little younger than that, but he's pretty close. So whatever I'm doing and my family's doing, the you know a big chunk of the, the population is doing, uh, and you know we're a pretty good read on on uh, demographic trends. And dem demography is uh, a destiny. And here's here's uh, uh, something that's a little counterintuitive for people uh, when we talk about economic forecasting in terms of accuracy. We are actually, as economists, not very good at forecasting what's going to happen, except for Ryan, you know, next week or next month or next quarter. But uh, because, you know, that's subject to so many kind of random events and things that, you know, weather and seasonal adjustment issues and events and cyber attacks and pandemics and, you know, political events, Georgia Senate races. I mean, all kinds of things that, you know, literally you can't. You just can't predict. I mean, the, these are uh, random events. Uh, but we're we are actually quite good at forecasting. You know, f three, five, seven years out. 
And that that's, I think, largely because of the demographic trends. I mean, the demographic trends three, five, seven years from now are already kind of in the data now because we know, you know, what, you know, how many people are going to be around three, five, seven years from now with a reasonable degree of certainty, you know, where they're going to live, uh, you know, what their ethnicity is going to be. Uh, what their income distribution is going to be. And those things, those are the things that, you know, ultimately uh, how many households are going to form, how many people are going to be in the workforce, uh, you, you know, uh, what's their educational attainment. Those things are already, you can take what's happening today and have a very good sense of what they're going to look like uh, certainly three, five, seven years down the road. So we're pretty good at, and these random events that mess up the forecast, they kind of iron themselves out, you know, three, five, seven years from now. So we're pretty good at, at uh, forecasting uh, out three, five, seven years. I will say though, if you look out much farther than that, certainly 10 years and beyond, then it gets tricky again, because at that point, the uh, technology shift and change and uh, there are you know, broader forces at work uh, that can you know, change the trajectory of an economy quite significantly. So I think the sweet spot for us as economic forecasters are, is actually three, five, seven years out. And a lot of that goes back to, we, we pay a very, very close attention to those demographic trends and uh, you know, what they imply about the future. And you know, uh, there's a lot of moving parts here on, on, on demography, uh, but I will say that I do think uh, that uh, our economic outlook three, five, seven years uh, from now should be uh, pretty good, uh, particularly if we uh, get the kind of normalization and immigration policy that I'm anticipating. Uh, and you know, just just given the aging of the population and the, and the boomers leaving that workforce, we should see productivity gains start to improve again. So, my sense is that uh, the economy's underlying growth rates, uh, three certainly five years, seven years from now, will be higher than they are today. And I and I think we can trace that right back to, to the demographic trends that are becoming evident today. So, with that, uh, I'll uh, we'll call it a uh, a podcast. Uh, hopefully. You found it of some interest and in, in, uh, value. Um, and uh, uh, again, if you like what you heard, uh, please uh, rate us. Uh, we use Those ratings are very important to us. So go to Inside Economics and uh, give us a rating. And, um, and oh, one other thing, I, I have, we haven't turned to your questions yet, but we will. Uh, we're just collecting them. So uh, please uh, fire away uh, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer. It's uh, inside economics at moody's.com inside economics at moody's.com. Uh, so with that, thank you so much. Uh, talk to you next week. 